There is no question that something is here. Lurking. Somewhere in the darkened corners. But how will we ever find out what it is? We need to look. Always. And never stop. No matter what stands in our way. No matter what others may think. Explore the darkness. Shine light into it. Join the red strings and the silver threads. Everything is connected. Somehow. I am Mark L. Watson. This is Peer Beyond the Veil. It's good to get out in the field because despite what most of these television programs, many of which I've been on until I talked about it, then they don't invite me anymore. Um, you really have to do something comparable to Hellier uh, because they got out there and followed the, what will we call them? The synchronicities is the term they used. And I think that that will do just uh, fine. And they didn't reach some endpoint. And that's the way field research goes. If you follow the synchronicities, from my experience, uh, really weird things happen. And the more you follow them and don't follow your intuition per se, the more those things tend to happen. And is there some end point? I haven't found one. But somewhere along the line, you begin to get a clue. Now, if you do academic research, uh, like the SPR or whoever, uh, you're likely to have a lot of statistical anomalies, but nothing, uh, Dean Radin, to the uh, contrary, nothing that you can say, this is it, Eureka, I have found it. Because this is uh, a little bit like chaos theory, really. In our world of the paranormal, the strange, the weird, the extraterrestrial, the ultra-terrestrial, and the occult, we search, individually and as a whole, for answers. Researchers come and go, some of the stalwarts hang on, their work cited and referenced, changed, adapted, evolving as the studies go on, and as more evidence is presented. Sometimes we feel like we've made a breakthrough, that we're standing on the doorstep of a change, an understanding, a new paradigm of knowledge that will bring us that inch closer to the truth. And sometimes we feel like we've never been further from it. We join the dots, and frequently it's acknowledged that all things we research are indeed linked in some manner. We associate ghosts and spirits with occult practice, the occult with extraterrestrials, Kenians will associate it all with the ultra-terrestrials, and then all manner of cryptids of the world tie in too. Nowhere better, certainly in the past decade, but surely more, has the wide spectrum of supernatural phenomena of this world been tied together with more clarity than in the documentary series 
Hellier. What can only be described as a breakthrough moment in the history of research into these things, it ties an encounter with an entity that goes back to the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter of 1955, if not further, to virtually every other aspect of the paranormal that we know. But through it all, there is one binding factor. We follow the Hellier team across the western United States, searching for new avenues to pursue and trying to dig up some old ones, even trying to find Indrid Cold's old home. But wherever we walk, we see that all roads lead to Greenfield. Occultist and long-time author Alan H. Greenfield has been one of the key players in the field for many decades. His first published work was the introduction of Silver Bridge by the great Grey Barker, an old friend, colleague and drinking partner of Greenfield's, and somebody of whom many great stories can, and will, be told. His work, The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, which forms the basis for the treasure hunt that is Hellier, underpins our very existence with all manner of strange beings from this world and others, and has served to many as a go-to reference point for confirming the synchronicities encountered throughout their research. A past member of the Society for Psychical Research and the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, and twice voted Ufologist of the Year at the National UFO Conference, Alan joins us tonight to explain how he has dedicated his life to trying to peer beyond the veil. I think that the universe has a, an underlying wholeness about it. And things that we take to be coincidental, uh, they are coinciding, but there's always some underlying meaning, just like you find in chaos theory, the, uh, the Fibonacci sequence and fractals and so forth are just everywhere to be seen from galaxies to butterflies. And uh, uh, therefore, I think there are... Uh, there are guiding synchronicities and there are, you think you got it all figured out and suddenly you get a phone call that you didn't expect from your Aunt Agatha, who you haven't talked to in years, but you did say her name just yesterday for no reason at all. Aunt Agatha, well, it could be if you believe that there are coincidences, it could be that she happened to call just, just at that time, uh, but the likelihood is low, and the significance is probably if you keep a diary of synchronicities, you'll find that they happen, uh, if you're into probability theory at all, it happens more often than chance just on unimportant, insignificant things, not the... Uh, the classical and perhaps uh, perhaps uh, telepathic, uh, you suddenly get a feeling that you're worried about your cousin Bill and you find out at that moment, you look at the clock, and at that moment, your cousin Bill was in a near fatal car wreck. I mean, these stories are so standardized that uh, I just take it for granted that they that they work out, that they, they have uh, a significance. The difference is that if you follow the synchronicities, I give you a personal example. I have been following the works of 
the late great Philip K. Dick since the 1950s. And every time, this did not happen back then when I was but a, a wee burn type creature. Um, I found that when I was mostly rereading stuff that I'd already read, if I put it down, some kind of synchronicity would happen. I'd turn on the telly and the telly would say, and uh, this was based on a book by Philip K. Dick. And it isn't necessarily the book that I was looking at, but it happened so many times. I would say it was, is, it still happens. Probably it'll happen today. 100% of the time from some point on, I guess circa 1983, 84, 85, somewhere in there. And... It happens so often that not being a meticulous person, I haven't kept a diary of, oh, today Philip K. Dick showed up and, uh, and the more famous he gets, uh, ironically, the, uh, the more uh, likely it is that something of that sort will occur. But when it started to happen, uh, nobody knew who he was ex outside of hardcore science fiction circles and apparently a few people in Hollywood who deemed it uh, really appropriate to do something about it. And uh, they do. So um, that is, to me, that is clearly um, an intended synchronicity. Yeah, where I'm a little conflicted, if conflicted is the word, on the synchronicity versus coincidence discussion is let me give you an example i was chatting quite recently with gary vasey um who's on an episode of of this show and he also does a podcast and he'd been speaking on his show with anthony peak and the two of them had been discussing the synchronicities that they'd both been experiencing which loop back into helia and they loop into pan and the horn god and some of the research that both gary and anthony have been doing and so Anthony appeared on Gary's show and they talked extensively about synchronicities. He put that out just a little while back and I listened to it whilst experiencing similar synchronicities, if you can term it that. And that was the same day that I heard back from yourself about your appearance on here, which also links back into Helia and Pan. And so you kind of have synchronicities piled up there, but at the same time... We're all in this world, we're all having similar discussions at the same time. Helia is everywhere, everybody's fascinated by it. It covers so many different phenomena that it ties into many of the things that we're all researching. And as I say, we're all discussing them at the same time. So, is it synchronicity that all those events line up? Or, or is it just a matter that we're all talking about the same thing, so it's only a matter of time till we talk about them at the same time? If I'm correct, and there are no coincidences, there's only synchronicity, maybe that's a low-level synchronicity. But, um, so it alerted you to, the, let's look at it as a synchronicity and assume that it is an artifact of being part of a somewhat incestuous community of people that are interested in the... Uh, unknown or 
uh, paranormal research or flying saucers, but whatever aspect, I think they're all the same thing, but that's, that's my particular take on things. Um, if it was only something that you took that got your attention and you conclude from that that some synchronicities are because of uh, material interactions between people, that is a useful synchronicity. So just mo mo moving on, kind of on and, and off at the same time. Last night was the opening of the Lion's Gate. I was wondering if you could just explain a little about it and, and, and how that's relevant to our, to our conversation or to yourself and how that ties into to obviously your work with Golden Dawn. And... I, have, I have always thought that what is taken to be magical ritual or occult ritual and the manifestations of various things from Nessie to the abominable snowman uh, the Sasquatch, you know, uh, the little people, fairy lore, which uh, some people think is confined to Ireland on days when people are very, very inebriated. Uh, it's not. It's a worldwide thing, and it's uh, very common in this country, which is sort of how Hellier got started. They went out looking for goblins and wound up uh, finding uh, everything from a, from a cult, uh, probably some kind of sex death cult, but they didn't get close enough to know. I said, how do you go to these places unarmed? Are you insane? <laughs> but uh, uh, that seemed to be one of the things that they happened upon. I think the pan ritual missed what I was trying to communicate, not that they have to follow you know, what I say, as far as I'm concerned, they could go somewhere else altogether. But uh, um, what I meant was that their entire process, season one and what was then developing into season two, was a ritual. I based that on my uh, friend Amadali, the uh, trance dancer who uh, came over here from London, I believe, to to do her performance for a group of people at a convention that we did and said, you know, everyone who witnesses my trance dancing becomes a co-participant in it. And indeed, that is the case, at least that is insofar as I can tell. I think the same thing, you know, applies to if you go out and follow the synchronicities that you find, whatever direction they twist and turn in, you're going to find, for lack of a better term, interesting stuff. And you can evaluate it later, but if you just go with it, you go with it. But I never meant, you know, in your uh, ultimate episode for the season, do an invocation of Pan. I read the hymn to the star goddess and this guy, I remember his name is Ken King. Uh, in our early days of the Mount, great Mount Arabia working, which was then more of a uh, following the Carlos Castaneda stuff. Um, he 
I did a pretty good job. I'm a pretty good orator. Um, but this guy read the hymn to Pan, and the star goddess went wandering off into the bushes because the hymn to Pan was so powerful, everybody in the room was just silent. We went out to the mountain. Something opened up and something came through. Uh, and that's where we get back to exactly what you were asking. I think that almost all of these things, uh, Richard Shaver's Dero, uh, the, the, the guy Terry, who I knew for like a year and get asked about all the time. Um, I think what they were doing, I thought it at the time, they go into the mouth of caves and they're not going deep into the earth. That's really not uh, doable. I mean, not really deep as you melt in the magma. What you're doing is you're finding certain conditions which create portals. And if you open that portal, you're going to a very weird place. There are other worlds right here in this room and right there in your room. And uh, it's, uh, it's always there. But what magicians are doing uh, when they do, let's say, an Enochian ritual is open up another dimension. And I think that's what the Lionsgate is as well. The thing that worries me a little bit is uh, Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons seem to have opened a portal in the um, California desert uh, near the border of Arizona, which is where I went to graduate school. So I know the turf real well. Um, I don't see any record of their having closed it. They got some really, really useful information. And it has been said repeatedly, a door opened and something came through. And that, according to the lore anyway, is the beginning of the modern UFO era. Of course, I think that the, the, the flaw in that logic is, um, I think all of these phenomena go back as far as we do, if not further. So it may be their portal is still open. I've often threatened to go to Pasadena and close it down, but uh, uh, it's a long trip. Uh, I, I think that the, the phenomena has been around as long as humans and possibly as long as the planet, if not longer. I stopped doing this, uh, what I would call ecclesiastical occultism some time ago because I got tired of, of having religious dogma stuck on something that I simply don't buy into. I mean, I have, for all of my weirdness, I have the most uh, uninteresting religious views that you could possibly have. I follow, I'm a lifelong follower of Reformed Judaism, which is minimal on the miraculous and maximal on social justice. I mean, that's not a fair, complete description, but that, that's where we are. And uh, so when I see something like transubstantiation in the Christian 
mass, which has been adapted by the Crowleyites in the Gnostic mass, which I know, alas, all too well. It's the notion that you take a substance and imbue it with egregore, the, only the select can imbue it, the priest or the bishop. And if you partake of that, you are eating the flesh of the God, whatever that God happens to be. That seems a lot like human sacrifice, which uh, Crowley, not my favorite person, but uh, he once said in one of his many lawsuit uh, interviews, he uh, was asked if he believed in human sacrifice. And he said one of those rare good things that he ever said, he said, yes, I believe it works. It's efficacious and I'm totally opposed to it. I think of him as the court jester of, of uh, occultism, that uh, those who take him seriously are many and some are thoughtful people but most are idiots he had a part to play in the early days of, of it you know with, yes with... and we should gently put that to rest and say you know he wanted that in his own list of saints he occupied two places so he really wanted to be in the list i'm willing to give him one place in the list of those who who carried the gnosis forward to their successors and their heirs, you know, but uh, why make a big deal out of it? He died in poverty as a drug addict and his last words supposedly were, I am perplexed. There you go. That is the sum of this life of exploration. Uh, so he joins the angels. I don't want to keep going back on, you know, onto, onto Helia too much. Obviously, you're quizzed on Helia so much, I'm sure. You know, I've heard you. Oh, yes, but it's been very good for a very old book, which is now selling much more than it did when it first came out. And people are doing what I thought they would do back then. They're actually working with the uh, secret cipher of the euphonotus, which, which caused me... Uh, uh, difficulties to know in because of the uh, the version that's out now, the complete secret cipher has two books in it, which was a what I intended to do. I originally wanted it to be a trilogy. Nobody, the people read it. I mean, it's sold out in the original edition. Then the publisher mysteriously was either murdered or not. I don't know. A lot of a lot of funny things happened that brought Illuminate Press down. The best thing that I can say is people are now working with the cipher in the way that I intended. I'm intended for it to be a tool for people to carry on the work way beyond where I'm coming from. So, um, and beyond my lifetime. And uh, the fact that it didn't happen until Hellier that's, for me, that's the best thing that I can say about Hellyard. I mean, that that, that it, people are actually working with the cipher. It doesn't hurt that it's also selling a lot of books. Our world of the paranormal, whatever that world is, plays host to all manner of strange and weird and wonderful creatures. 
look back through time and across all the cultures of the world and there are quite literally thousands of them. They range from the most bizarre of cryptozoological creatures, sea monsters, thunderbirds, harpies and kelpies and bigfoots. We have extensive history of fairy encounters, extraterrestrials of all shapes and sizes and descriptions, and the entities and spirits who exist in the netherworld, beyond, mostly, our line of sight. You would be pushed to find somebody who believed that all these things are real, in any sense of the word, but then you would also be pushed to find someone who does not believe at least a little in some aspect of it. So many of the things we discuss and research and read books about cross over with others. Classic fairy lore and their kind, the elves and sprites and pixies, have them as mischievous folk who move things around your home, tricksters, even when you can't see them. Poltergeists, maybe? Hunters and trekkers have spotted and chased down huge bipedal creatures in environments around the world, the Sasquatch, the Yeti, the Orang Pendek, but seen them vanish into the ether in front of them. Spirits, maybe? These things, all or some of them, are claimed to exist in other dimensions that seemingly exist alongside our own, phasing in and out for reasons yet truly unknown. Is that dimension purely one within our own minds? A place where we, either through our own doing or through some external influence, manifest these things? Not to say that they aren't real in some sense, not purely fabrications of our own minds, but rather that our own minds are the only place where we can see them? Or is there more to it? Einstein theorised that there are four dimensions, even though we can only see three, and he guessed there may be as many as eleven. So what is the great connection between these things? Is there a unifying theory to it all? They're all taken to be connected to some kind of otherware, whether it's extraterrestrial space, which puzzles me a lot because they're never seen in coming to Earth, they're seen on the Earth. They have that persistence through history. They remain, all of them, just they remain just beyond the horizon. They seem to be sort of like mirages in that no matter how close you get they're still further down the road people give up on them people will find that they interact like the little beings that came out of UFOs the so-called little green men uh, are very little different if at all from the um, the, the, the entire uh, um, corpus of fairy lore. In fact, the, the societies that investigate these things even adapt the names. There's a Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau. That's a take from ufology. I mean, you know, that 
people have been seeing the Loch Ness Monster since, what, since the early 20th century at least, and probably longer than that. But using that kind of name and that kind of research method indicates that you're dealing with another version of the same phenomenon. And beyond that, am I putting you to sleep? <laughs> beyond that, I think that if you take into account any kind of version of the alternate membrane uh, theory, if, there, if that is correct, let's assume that it is, we are not any distance whatsoever from worlds that may be vastly different from our own. Why should they not interact? Our senses, our five senses, are really not built for anything too sophisticated. We, we just came down from the trees a moment ago in biological time. In geological time, we're still in the trees. And in cosmological time, I, I don't know. There's, not even a second. So the notion that we've developed these senses for anything other than mating, running away from predators, being predators ourselves, we only have a what, couple of thousand years, which is nothing in terms of evolution, to use these senses to divine what a little green man really is, or what a Yeti really is, or what Bigfoot really is stupid names or what the Loch Ness monster really is. So we, we come up with these somewhat uh, speculative notions about them. Anyway, so I kept seeing a cap on the bag. The only bag on the ground, it was not a, you know, slummy area, it was just dark. And as I approached it, I could see there was no cat on it. And I, I was, when you take long walks in the middle of the night, you do a lot of mentation. And I thought, aha, this is the sort of thing that happens. You create a cat or something. It could have been a dog. It could have been a raccoon, something. I mean, this is, you know, near a national forest. Um, and since it's a white bag, it would be, it would look like a white cat laying on the bag until you get close enough to resolve it with your, you know, as normal a vision as I have. And, uh, I'm glad you get my sense of humor. I hope your audience does. <laughs> they'll be returning. They can my... see what I'm looking at this entire time. I'll, I'll have to explain. They'll be returning it, the book, in droves to Amazon or Amazon UK or whoever they get it, get it from. But if you return it, you don't get anything back. And it will be on the used book market for $462 or something. See a moth, man? Or did you see a moth, man? I can see a moth, man. Right here. Well, in any case, so I kept seeing that, and I, I wondered idly, of course, not wanting to do anything myself, because why wasn't the bag picked up? Well, it wasn't in an alley. It was the only bag there. 
and I must have gone by it I was going to say a thousand times but that would be a lot several hundred times and there was nothing on the bag but I would frequently see the cat in the bag then I walked by it and I thought oh, there's the hallucination again and I walked up and there was a white cat on that bag who saw me and then got off the bag and ran off now what are the odds I mean I can't even calculate all of the variables involved there could have been a dog could have been nothing could have been I could have gone a thousand times and there would still be nothing on the bag so that reminded me immediately of that scene in the uh, in the matrix you told yourself a cat either <laughs> yeah either I created the tulpa and it was manifesting so no matter how close I got although it did run away but it ran away like a normal cat I never saw it again there are other there were other cats in the neighborhood they were all black it was a black cat I would go way around not to have them cross my path sometimes I would chase them to beat them out but <laughs> a white cat no 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 it was it was a totally unlikely experience that I attribute to something that help us as good a term as you're going to get and did I create it I don't know or was it just a glitch in the fabric of what we take to be reality perhaps I don't know but have I in some way gotten around to answering your your question about uh, the nature of reality because I'll just get back to existence becoming existence yeah I mean this have you answered it um you know will will, will you ever I don't mean will you, ever, you know, will will we ever will we ever answer it I mean, yes it will be in my new book existence by Alan point is we don't know you know I I just think there's there's so many crossovers between them you know um oh yeah I mean I've even I've even seen um, cases where one phenomena morphs into another, clearly, you know, and they're not the most common cases, but I think they're the most revealing, you know, where a UFO morphs into, uh, there's a case from the 1950s where a, a family is riding on, I I don't know whether this was before the Audubon type roads were built. We'll say it was on US 1 going towards Miami. And they see a cylindrical UFO very near the ground. In this story, the UFO doesn't go away, it just hovers and it lowers something that looks like an elevator. And out of it, and this will date it, are uh, a series of Ford Galaxy, which was the name of a, of a model car. And with a man in, a black, in black clothing behind the wheel of each car as it came down, and they drove off. So <clears throat> what are we dealing here with? We're dealing with a UFO we're dealing with men in black and we're dealing with ghost cars which also have a lot of circulation 
in this lore. Now, do I believe that that happened as literally as the percipients claim? No, I do not. But something was the stimulus for this response. And it's the same sort of thing that uh, John Keel was encountering on Long Island. Um, Keel is a whole different subject. He, uh, his West Virginia stories are a little less, a little shakier because my old friend Gray Barker was uh, hoaxing him here and there as Gray was wont to do. Uh, the calls from Indrid Cole were not Indrid Cole. They were Gray the Barker. That's right, Mr. Keel. Yeah, the same as God, you know, but uh, but it was Barker. And, uh, I mean, Gray and Jim Mosley would get together and they'd get stoned and uproariously drunk and they do some kind of prank. But I also say there are no hoaxes because Jim Mosley and I have Gene Steinberg, one of my fellow teen ufologists grown old, are in Jim's New York apartment. And Jim, uh, Steinberg doesn't drink. Uh, Jim gets uproariously drunk as he was wont to do. I don't think, I love the man, but I don't think he ever drew a sober breath and he lit one cigarette off of another and he lived into his 80s defying all all of my health food uh, uh, pretense. But in any case, he decides he's going to create a hoax at an arbitrary town by calling the local police department and telling them that there was a UFO in the vicinity. So he uh, spent a lot of years in New Jersey before he retired to Key West, where he was my neighbor. Um, so he, he picks out of nowhere the Wanakue, New Jersey Police Department. And he knows the area, so he says, there's a flying saucer over the reservoir there, made up, story completely made up. That was the beginning of the Wanakue flap. It was a, a major series of good UFO sightings that persisted for some days. It doesn't get called a flap because somebody makes a phone call. It gets called a flap because lots of UFOs are seen by cops and by real people and you know, whatever, whatever. That put me in mind of the notion that the, A, the investigators become part of the phenomena. One of the little Greenfield sayings that I use and B, that hoaxes tend to take on a life of their own because reality, as we understand it, we being not the royal we, the uh, collective we, uh, is malleable, is somewhat more plastic than we give it credit for. That's why magic works. That's why these uh, apparitions appear 
to some extent according to our advanced expectations, even if there are multiple witnesses, whether it's a ghost or whether it's a, a, a little man from outer space or whether it's an abduction experience or any of that, uh, even near-death experiences fall into that category. And um, I mean, the abduction experiences and near-death experiences are so close one must say it's only the circumstance under which they occur that separate the two, and they're the same phenomenon. Doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean it's not valid. What it means is one validates the other, and they're basically the same thing. So there you have it. No hoaxes. If you do a hoax and it makes it into public consciousness, which some hoaxes don't, the hoax takes on a life of its own, and there again, it's something that becomes a, uh, Crowley in his secret teachings would say, was bud will, the creation through sexual magic of a temporary being that can do your will. Well, I'm not into the notion of triumph of the will. It has negative connotations for some of us, but... Um, but I do think that we do, to a large extent, create the reality that we're living in. So this has been ecstatic. You ask the right questions and sometimes I give the right answers. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, all the best. Same for you. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Take care. Peer Beyond the Veil has been written and presented by myself, Mark Watson. Music and soundtracks are credited and licensed to Purple Planet and to Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. All rights are reserved by our parent company, MLW Publishing. You can follow us at facebook.com forward slash peerbeyondtheveil or on Twitter at peerbeyondtheveil or at peerbeyond2020. Please click the like and subscribe buttons when you see them, most importantly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us to attract the attention we need to keep the show going, to get the guests that you all want to hear from, and to help more and more people peer beyond the veil. Thank you.